That's what I love the most about the USGA schedule is getting to do the big events is an honor. I mean, getting to do a U.S. Open or a Women's Open, Senior Open. But, you know, when you get to do these amateur events, you're literally looking at players that are eventually going to be in the lexicon of golfers. I mean, Alexa Pano last week, you know, was 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 battling in the Symmetra. You know, we, we had her in plenty of events as an 11 and a 12 and a 13-year-old. And you're looking at a, at a superstar in the making before a lot of people get to see him. In 1744, the first golf club with a definite proof of origin was the Company of Gentlemen Golfers Who Played of Leith, now called the Honourable Company of Edinburgh Golfers Who Play at Muirfield. It was that year when several gentlemen of honour, skillful in the ancient and healthful exercise of the golf, petitioned the Edinburgh City Council to donate a silver club for their annual competition on the Leith Links. The winner of the competition was declared captain of the golf for the year, and a silver ball with the date and the captain's name inscribed upon it was attached to the silver club. Thank you for listening to the Silver Club podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. Okay, we're back with another episode of the Silver Club podcast, and uh, Colin is on the road now with the Yale team. Colin, bring us up to speed of what's going on. Well, we're here in Greenville, South Carolina. Um, Today was the practice round of the Furman Invitational. Very excited for this. It's a, a three-day tournament, a rare 18-18-18, uh, 54-hole uh, format. So tomorrow we're in the first wave. Um, we're paired with the host team We've and the University of Minnesota, the Gophers. So it's pretty exciting. The, we're we're uh, teams meeting for – Steve, you can appreciate this. We got, you know, breakfast in the in meeting room B here in the courtyard by Marriott at oh, 6.30. Luxurious. Leaving in wheels, uh, wheels up at 7.05 to get to the golf course in the dark. The boys will be, uh, it'll be about 35 degrees. They'll be hitting, they'll be at the range and then uh, tee times begin around 8.30. So it's pretty, we're, we're pretty excited. This is our second event. Uh, we played last weekend down in Florida at the Mission yeah, Inn. And how how'd, yeah. that, how'd that go? We played. We had a we had a very good finish. Uh, tip of the cap to the to the Kansas State. They won. They they ran away with it, and um, we finished behind uh, Central Florida and Illinois State. But we were fourth out of eighteen teams, which was which was uh, pretty good for the first tournament. We were the kids. The kids all played well, and. Um, it was a it was a really good tournament. It was the first time we ever played in it, and uh, we've been in. We're we're having uh, we're having a great time. Spring break is it's always just kind of a it's like a cram session. So we've we've been taking advantage of the sort of long the long daylight. We've had some beautiful days, some cold weather, but how about some yeah. uh, some practice time? Like where have you where have you practiced in between you know last week in Florida and and this week in uh, South Carolina? Well, we we took advantage of the uh, the justly famous a hoopy match club where we spent a, spent a few days uh, working hard, playing a ton of golf. Uh, just really, I I love that place so much. And uh, the kids didn't want to leave. They they even uh, they did their laundry. <laughs> what kind of they've never been treated? They've never been treated so well in their life. But most importantly, uh, we had my immediate. My predecessor, uh, my mentor, Dave Patterson, and his wife, Angela, joined us. And the old coach, 
they still live, they live um, on Spring Island about an hour and a half away. And I, I love them both very much. And they, they, it was a, it was a joy to get to spend time with them and, and, uh, and have them and have coach hang out with the kids and uh, rolling through while we were there was your coach, buddy Alexander came through with Mike Donald in a group. So uh, very sweet. Yeah. Go Gators. Go Gators. Uh, but the the kids play great golf. They love. They relish the match play concept. Um, I felt bad. Three of them had to play an eighteen hole stroke play qualifier for the for the sort of fifth fifth spot in the lineup in the indie spot. And it was a little cruel and unusual to have to have someone play a hoopie and sort of actually play it with a card and pencil. And that's not what it was intended for. But uh, they're still really good. Nice, nice, nice. Well, uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. So you've got so you've got this tournament, and do we have any more uh, during spring break? No, this will be it. We'll we we will uh, we'll uh, wrap it up on Sunday after the final round, and we'll head straight to the Charlotte airport. Uh, hopefully, uh, catch that plane, get home. We'll get back to campus about one in the morning, and then uh, we'll hope that there's the snow is gone and that the course is open and we'll get ready for the Princeton Invitational that first weekend in April. And it's just, it's amazing to me how in the Northeast, how quick it goes. It's, you know, how quickly it goes. It's, we'll have uh, the Princeton Invitational April 6th and 7th. And then we host the Yale Spring Invitational on Saturday, April 13th. And just like that, I'm picking my lineup for the Ivy Championships. We will leave a few days later on Thursday, the 18th. It's just, so premature it's just uh there's you 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 are smart to stay in florida there's such a bias uh in favor of the southern schools and college golf tell us tell us what it was like to to play to play for buddy alexander what is what it was like to play in the sec in the late 90s what it, tell us tell you have a sort of any particular uh college golf story that that you you'd want to share yeah, we're yeah we're certainly right in the throes of college golf. Uh, I, I think probably the 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 best golf story that I can I can give, and 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 this really goes to a lot of people out there who maybe have struggled uh, early on in their college career. For me, it was really difficult for me personally to to play college golf and go to school and do all that. I usually played a lot better in the summers when I didn't have to worry about school and and do all that. But but for me, I didn't have a win. I, I've I've won several tournaments as an amateur in that you know eighteen to twenty two year old range, but I didn't win a college event until the very last time that I had a chance to, which was the spring of my senior year. So uh, and and for somehow some way I managed to win three out of four in a stretch in the spring of my senior year. Uh, won the SEC Player of the Year my senior year. Uh, got got second team All American that year, and it was so that was pretty special. The senior year, kind of when I had to get it done, I I did, and I played really well, and it, it was really special. My very first win, and you talk about Buddy Alexander in the University of Florida. My very first win was at the Gator Invitational, and I'll never forget. He was we always played shotgun tournaments in college, or most of the time, and and our final round at the Gator Invitational was no different. And so he was driving me out to the uh, uh, to the, my starting hole, and he he told me, and I'll never forget this, and and I, I I thank him for telling me this. He said, 
all great Gators win the Gator Invitational. And, and it just kind of resonated with me the whole entire round. And I ended up uh, making a 10-footer on the very last hole to win the event. And uh, so that was probably the most special collegiate story I had. And, you know, playing for Buddy Alexander at University of Florida. In the SEC, uh, arguably, you know, very, very difficult conference. Uh, it, it, was, it was a special time for me. That's a great story. That's really cool. I do have a sensitivity this time of year. It's always pretty, you know, there's um, a bittersweet aspect to it. You know, you're, you, you know, you're, you know, graduation is coming and, and uh, you know, it's interesting as you get to the height of your relationship with the seniors, almost as you almost are really getting into that sort of like the extent of the relationship is really comfortable and you know them and their parents and, you really know them. It's like, and then they, right as if you're at the height of your sort of your relationship, they graduate and they're gone. And then, you know, you'll text with them and then they'll, they'll, they'll email you to, to help them uh, to write a letter of recommendation to business school or something, or they'll be getting married. But, you know, I, you know, I, we host the Yale Spring Invitational and we don't really do any ceremony like senior day, but that day is, that day is always, an, I, I, I spend that day sort of, we're half competing and I'm half thinking about the kids, you know, competing on the, uh, as Yale golfers on their home course for the last day, the starters make a big, always really, um, when they announce the, the, the pairings, you know, when they announce each group and each player and they do the best job at the Yale course on, with their sort of, with, you know, Vinny and Bobby and Ray and all, all through the years, we, they do a, a really, uh, a, a really beautiful introduction and for the seniors especially it's a cool moment it's just, it's and it's a, it's um you know i i uh you you want uh you want them to to have a great day you want them to have you, you i don't know i i put i don't think i've ever i should do what buddy did i should tell them uh if they haven't won this you know Every uh, every great Yale golfer goes out by winning the Spring Invitational. That's a that's a. I don't know if I'm willing to put that much pressure on the guys. Yeah, no, no. Look, there, yeah, there's the the college game is 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 amazing. There are so many great players out there shooting some really low scores. Here's here's a stat for you, Colin. In Ty, when Tiger Woods had his eight win sophomore season in 1996, including the NCAA championship at the honors course in Tennessee. His scoring average that year was 70.61. And wow. he was, and, and he won eight times that year this year with a 70.61 stroke average, he would rank 51st in the nation. So, so golf has changed immensely over the years in, uh, I guess that's 23 years ago. And, you know, the, the, the players are fitter. They're hitting the ball farther. The golf courses are easier uh, because they're hitting wedge into every green. I mean, think about the Yale golf course up there and how many how many holes that they're hitting, you know, short irons into where, you know, you were hitting you know longer clubs. And and, you know, it just changes the no dynamic question. of the golf course dramatically, doesn't it? It sure does. You know, and I'd say, like, I'd be curious. To, I really would love to have seen, like, yeah, see how Tiger, what he was shooting in those wins. And I wonder how much were the conditions. I know there's a big sensitivity now to like scoring averages. And and so um, some tournaments won't move, a, convert a par five into a par four to sort of uh, protect the sort of under par nature of it. And or they might they might suspend play sooner than they used to. But there's no question. I mean, 
you saw what Wake Forest just just won Valspar. I mean, the the, the depth of the sort of the field of all the major college tournaments is incredible. And they're really in many ways longer than the pros. They're the ones who they're almost on the sort of frontier of, of, of the extreme distance because you rec- every year you seem to get in the U S open, you get some sort of super long hitting amateur makes headlines. And it's the pros know that even, even for as long as they hit it, they don't, they don't. You don't make a, a consistent living hitting at three fifty. You actually have to. Is Rory? How many times does Rory go one hundred percent on a drive? I don't know. It seems like uh, maybe, it maybe went, he's a bad example. It seems like winning the Players Championship last week. He was. Uh, I was shocked. I was seriously shocked that he took driver on the last hole there when he had that lead. And I don't know. I guess uh, you know if that was me. I guess I mean, it's probably the difference between Roy McIlroy and myself. You know, I probably would have hit some long iron or fairway wood out to the right and probably totally bailed out in the right rough. And, you know, he takes driver, stands up there like a champion that he is and and just takes it, you know, down the left side over the over the wooden planks that Pete Dye built in that left side of the uh, of the 18th hole there at TPC Sawgrass. You know, and almost though, but he hits it so far that the play is like to hit the bomb driver. It's, there's almost like the landing area becomes wider at that point. Right. It almost starts to bend left like. And if he pulls it, he's so long, he's going to he's going to like, you know, make the carry. But you're right. he He's true to his game. Definitely have to say Rory is true to his game. And somebody else who's true to their game is our next guest, Shane Bacon from Fox Sports. He covers golf. He does football. He does a little bit of everything. He's a wealth of knowledge and a great listen. Looking forward to listening to him. We couldn't do this podcast without the support of the Silver Club Golfing Society. We're building up a great community of golfers as I speak. Index is 7.9 and below, playing on some of the greatest golf courses around the country. Check us out at silverclubgolfingsociety.com, as well as see what we're doing on social media at Silver Club Golf on Instagram and Twitter. Now, without further ado, here's Shane Bacon. Okay, we have a wonderful day here on the Silver Club Podcast. We have our very first major network golf broadcaster with us today, Shane Bacon. Welcome, Shane. Man, I'm the first you call a major broadcaster. Wow, I I like that title. I want you to say that a few more times during the whole podcast. That's great. You you are you are you are the real deal, and you've you've made a quick ascension to the uh, the the great broadcasting talent that you are. But uh, and we'll dive into that soon. But recently, uh, I did a little math on you, and and the, you're such a prolific social media guy. Twitter alone, you have. 53,000 plus followers on Twitter. You've made 42,000 tweets since you came on on January 2009. That's an average of 4,200 a year, 344 a month, and 11.3 tweets a day. Man, with all this other stuff you've got going on, how do you have time? You are just out there. Yeah, it's the most depressing thing I've ever heard. I really appreciate you doing that. That, that makes me that makes me just think about how little amount of time I've spent doing other stuff. You know. What I've always tried to do with, uh, with especially Twitter, Twitter's always been my favorite social media outlet. It's the one I've had the most fun with. I think it's the most fun interactive one. It's something that makes a lot of sense to me and something I can have fun with. You know, during big events, the major championships, Ryder Cup, things like that, you know, I'll be on social all day talking as if I'm talking to my buddies that I would be in a group text chain with. So that's those are the day where I probably have two or 300 and then I'll definitely take a few days away. But uh, yeah, it's, 
you know, the it, it's a good place to chat. I think that is more than anything else. And I and I don't just speak about golf. You know, I'll talk during the NCAA tournament or during the NBA playoffs or on a random night that Rockets and you know Rockets and Warriors are playing. You know, I'll jump in that conversation as well because you know I don't want to just be kind of pigeonholed into the golf scene, even though that's the majority of what I talk about. I just like to have a conversation with people and, and have a little bit of fun. You are well-versed on all sports. I, I give you major credit there. And and not only are you well-versed on all sports, but you, you golf-wise specifically, you're you're a great player. You're a, uh, you're a, over a plus three handicap. Hopefully you're, uh, you're winning a few bets at home. I'm not sure with a plus handicap that you will. But, but I remember our round, we played uh, back in 2017 during the U.S. Junior uh, out in Kansas. We made a little side venture over to the prairie dunes <laughs> and played with mark loomis uh, producer and uh, brett quigley i remember playing with brad faxon's clubs that were about four degrees too upright and i was hooking everything all that day but you know you you can play you can bomb it uh you got that power fade that you've patented but how, how did you you know when did you start playing the game and and how did you get so good well, I was never a golfer when I was younger. I played baseball and basketball and football, and my uh, my dad was a big golfer. Uh, he played a couple times a week. He played in a couple of money games in East Texas. And, you know, it just so happened that a couple of my friends took it up when they were like 12, 13 years old. When I started to show a little bit of promise on the golf side, I had to make a decision if I was going to pursue baseball or golf when I went into high school because they were at the same time in the schedule. And so I picked golf because – you know, there was a lot of baseball players in my class, in my school. We were a good team. We ended up having a top 10 draft pick the year before me. We had the state 5A pitcher of the year, was a buddy of mine in my same class. So our baseball team was set. Wow. And so I just kind of went into I went into golf. And, you know, I won a couple of tournaments in high school early and, you know, put up some good numbers. And I was kind of RA player at the Marshall High School. And that was that was where I started. And that's kind of where I went through. And then when I got an opportunity with, with the AJGA, when I finally got into one of the events there, you know, it was probably one of the better events I ever played in my life, considering the moment and the pressure. I finished top 10. Uh, I shot 67 in the second round, which I, I broke 70. I think I broke 70 once in my life before that moment. Shot 67, didn't make a bogey. Actually, I remember distinctly, it was, it was in Abilene. The last hole was a par four. I was nervous as hell. There was par four. There was water down the left side. I, uh, I hit driver and, and just kind of, you know, kind of like thinned it out there in the fairway, just, you know, hoping to get it in play and don't hit it in the lake. Hit my second shot on the green to like 20 feet. And I'm like, nice. I'm bogey free. I'm going to shoot a bogey free round of 67. This is unbelievable. And I had like 20 feet and chunked the putt. I chunked it like <laughs> chunked 10 the putt. feet. And had like 10 feet left for par. And then I was mad at myself. So I made the putt because I was mad. But yeah, I, I hit maybe the worst putt in the history of my life. But yeah, I mean... I just kind of got through the ranks of junior golf and I thought about playing collegially and decided not to because I hurt my wrist my senior year and uh, a couple of schools I was going to go to wanted me to retry out after going out there for all the recruiting trips and stuff like that. But I still played some amateur stuff uh, while I was at the University of Arizona and and, and, and had moments of thinking about walking on, but uh, just decided not to. And then when I got done, I, uh, I took a job at a golf course and you know was out there grinding with some of the guys trying to play mini tour golf. And yeah, that was kind of my, uh, my my journey through it. But yeah, I've just, you know, I've always played. I've, I've always, uh, you know, I, I, I like practicing, which I think a lot of people don't do. So, yeah. I mean, you know, I have the time when I'm home. So that's that's something that I think has benefited me. But yeah, I mean, it's, 
you know, it, it, it's crazy when your handicap's where it is right now because, like you said, do I win money? Um, it's really hard to win money as a plus two and a half. <laughs> <laughs> it really is a bummer whenever you yeah, have to I get bet. shots back. You're like grinding to make birdie to, to be a par. So, yeah. Yeah, no, you. Yeah, I, I think that's what uh, you know. What separates you as a as a broadcaster? If I'm just you know speaking bluntly, you know, you you walk the walk and you can talk the talk, and I think that's what makes you you know so believable and so great uh, on camera and you know on your podcasts and everything. You've got a you've got a great uh, a great sense of what of what's going on, and 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 you know uh, back to the I mean to the history of golf. Really, you you spent uh, you spent a summer caddying at. The home of golf, St. Andrews in Scotland, uh, you've, you've got to have a, a great story or, or something from, you know, I mean, the, the, the rounds of golf, you could probably loop three rounds a day over there with all the sunlight, couldn't you? Oh, I mean, we'd, we'd play, uh, you know, if we did like one loop in the mornings, uh, we had a group of four guys, my buddy Will, and then a couple of guys we met over there, you know, we'd tee off at 6 p.m. sometimes, you know, we go to the new course of the Jubilee, we'd wait until the starter shed em- emptied so that we didn't have to pay our little caddy fee to get through. And I mean, we, you know, we'd tee off at 6 PM and be done at 10, 10 30. I mean, we'd play all day and all night caddy twice a day, you know, four or five times a week. It was, uh, it was awesome. We met a couple of guys that caddied at a, at a pretty prestigious club in the States and they had a rental car. And so we would just kind of pile all four of our clubs and all four of ourselves in their little rental car and go play little courses around St. Andrews that nobody had ever heard of. So yeah, it was, uh, it was awesome. And then of course you, uh, you get some interesting loops around uh, around the old course. You get some guys that that maybe lie a little. I know this is a shocker. They might lie a little about their uh, their abilities to get on the uh, first tee. You, you see, you see many people. Uh, I mean, the fairway there on uh, that one and eighteen share at St Andrews is one hundred and twenty yards wide. You see a lot of people miss that fairway because they're so nervous on that tee. You know, you'd see a lot of misses right out of bounds. Uh, mm. The Himalayas putting greens over there, and you know they'd be bombarding those people over there that paid one pound to go putt. That was the scary thing was, you know, you'd get those shots on the first hole and you're sitting there going, oh, my God, this is going to be a long, long day. The guys you didn't want were the bad golfers that cared. That's fine getting a bad golfer that doesn't care. That's a great day. You know, they'll <laughs> maybe have a couple of beers and enjoy themselves. But, you know, when you get the guy that's like a 40 handicap that really cares about what he's going to shoot yeah. and he wants to frame that scorecard when he's done. Those were uh, those were the days where the afternoon loop might not have happened. It might have been straight to the Dunvegan. <laughs> and 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 you, you parlayed that. I mean, well, let, let's let, let me backtrack for a second. So you you uh, having spent that summer over there, did you find a love for golf course architecture during that time? And you said you you pile in a car, you played a bunch of courses around the area. Like, what was your favorite? And you know, how much how much do you love golf over there as composed as opposed to here in the states? I mean, I, I'm a I'm a Lynx golfer, you know, through and through. It just makes more sense to me. I think that uh, at the at the core of my golf ability, the core of my golfing brain, not having a rangefinder, hitting any club that can get on the green, get close to the hole, to me has always made more sense than maybe the the Parkland style golf where you're 150 yards and you're hitting nine iron, you know, and you and that's the club for that distance. And so that golf always made sense to me. It took a little bit of time for me to totally understand it. But, you know, now when I go play there or even go to a place like Bannon Dunes, you know, here in the States that that is very linksy as well, just taking the club that will pull the shot off is important. And I think a lot of the time American golfers for sure have a hard time hitting a four iron from 160, you know, because that's not the club for that distance. It's not even close to the club exactly. for that distance. And when you, you know, that was a hard thing I had with Caddy and where I'd say, 
listen, just hit this and trust me. And you would get guys that did it. You would get guys that actually would say, here's my clubs. I'm in your hands for four and a half hours. Let me know the shot you want me to hit. And, you know, when you're 60 yards off the green and you're telling them to hit a bump and run seven iron, it's hard <laughs> for a lot of guys for that to, to actually, you know, roll through the brain into their body, into their hands and actually feel like they can pull the golf shot off. But some of the people would. And those were the most fun days because you'd get done with the round and they would say, you know, you helped me play better golf. So, you know, Lynx golf to me was awesome. You know, I, of course, the old course, probably my favorite golf course on the planet. We played Lady Banks one day, which was a lot of fun. London Lynx was a golf course down the street where actually Brad Faxon qualified into the Open Championship one time and now nice. has an honorary membership. So I bug him every time I'm over there to call over and give me a tee time. But <laughs> there are... That is the most fun thing about Scotland. And, and I mean, it's very hard to tell people to do this because, you know, if you're lucky, you might go on three or four trips in your entire life to Scotland to play golf. But something I have always pushed people to do is leave a couple of days open on their Scotland trip and just go play a golf course you drive by, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, it's like Tom coining the, the Scotland uh, <laughs> landslide, because if you can do that, you'll be massively shocked at the golf courses you find. Now, you might not get a polo from them if they even sell them in the pro shop and you might not wear it and people go oh i remember playing there but you'll have these memories of these golf courses that have been there for three four hundred years that are that are literally blowing your mind good and uh in in 99.9 percent .9 of golfers and americans have never heard of it and the caddies over there i mean you know outside of yourself being an american i mean the, the caddies over there really make the day too with their thick scottish accents and uh you know, a lot of times giving you grief, uh, you know, just no, a fun no BS play, attitude. Yeah, playfully. There's no, there's no BS when you uh, when you do it. You had a bad shot. They uh, they have a line for it. You know, that's uh, that's something that I always uh, I always enjoy when you get the uh, the older caddies in your group and you got to hear the stuff that they would tell their players, you know, stuff I would never say in a million years because I'd be scared they would get mad at me or fire me or not tip me. And those guys have no fear at all. And when you caddied on the LPGA Tour, I mean, did you, uh, yeah, you probably refrained from a, a few of those, uh, you know, one-liners that uh, might get you fired real quick. But, uh, you know, I know a lot of caddies have nicknames out there. When you were caddying on the LPGA Tour for, uh, for a time, uh, for Irene Cho and uh, the late Erica Blasberg. I mean, did you have a, a nickname? Or I know there's lots of great nicknames out there for caddies. I mean, did you did you have a, a name that people went uh, that you went by? Yeah, you know, I was tough because Bacon is just so easy. You know, I mean, <laughs> when your last name is Bacon, it's very very hard for people to come up with more. They don't need to. I mean, you know, you have such. Steve Scott is a name that needs a nickname. You know, that is a very, <laughs> it's a great, simple, strong name, Steve Scott. But like, you could have a great caddy nickname. But Bacon, people are just going to call you Bacon, for goodness sakes. That was <laughs> always the case with me through football and baseball and golf and caddying and all that stuff was, there's Bacon, where's Bacon, here's Bacon. That yeah, was, uh, I that was, was what I was and I always thought that was funny. Recently, you were on uh, Andy Johnson's podcast, The Fried Egg. I thought that was an interesting little uh, <laughs> little balance of breakfast foods there. Uh, yeah, that was that, 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 there could have been a partnership uh, back in the day at some point between us if he hadn't have found Brennan Porath, where uh, I'm sure Fried Egg and Bacon would have... Uh, <laughs> Would have been a layup for anybody writing the headline. Yeah. Well. Well. You're. You're. Let's talk a little about your career as as uh, 
you know, kind of moving up. And, you know, you came in, you started as a writer in 2008 for uh, Yahoo Sports, I believe. And then you, you know, in 2014, you, you got your TV debut on the Back Nine Network. And, and, you know, without going into too much detail, you know, being in front of a camera as opposed to being, you know, behind the scenes or, or you know, typing on a keyboard and, or, you know, writing your thoughts out is a lot different. How long did it take you to get comfortable in front of a camera? You know, I mean, it was a short stint at back nine because it wasn't around for a long time. I mean, I feel like I got more and more comfortable quicker because it was a studio show. Um, I think the live golf thing took a little bit longer to feel comfortable in that setting because it's so much different than doing studio stuff. You know, studio, you know, you get a you have a you have a basically a layout of the day. You know, here's the A block. Here's the B block. Here's the C block. We're going to touch on Tiger. Then we're going to talk Ryder Cup. Then we're going to talk Annika Sorenstam. And then we're going to take a break and we come back. We'll have an interview with Cheyenne Woods. You know, that was like the layout of the day. So you could you could have notes, you could prepare, you could get stats. You know, when you're doing live golf, you can prepare for the event as much as you want. But when the th- when stuff's happening, it's just all off the cuff. I mean, you're calling what's going on. I mean, you you found that as well. Being out on the golf right. course with us for Fox is, you know, when you're out on the golf course calling golf shots, you have absolutely no idea what's about to happen. It's all circumstantial and it's all in that moment and that's why as you know and i know being on the golf course it's important to kind of progress as you as you see things happening because it's more than the number and the distance and the hole it's the lie and the wind and they're frustrated and they slam the door to go into the bathroom after three bogeys (laughs) in a row you know these are the things you're seeing that we're not catching on camera on the golf course and then me in the booth is trying to punch that up with facts and stats and information on the player and uh, and trends and so I think the live golf thing took a little bit longer to be comfortable in and the studio stuff was just a lot of people getting to know each other on camera which is a which is a very unique thing and it was a unique thing about back nine network I just worked with John McGinnis last weekend on PGA Tour Live and you know every time we work together we uh we spend every two minute break talking about Hartford, Connecticut, because it was uh, <laughs> it was a wild, wild, you know, five, six months of our lives that we will never forget. And it was massively important to me in my career because I was given an opportunity to speak about golf for five days a week on TV. Yeah, you always need a, a, a start. And uh, that's yeah, that was a, a, a very good start for you. And but uh, bigger and better things have been on the horizons lately for you. Uh you know, back in uh, 2015, you started as an on-course reporter for Fox, and you, you. But you've quickly moved into the into the booth and the play-by-play, and and like you mentioned, we've been I've been fortunate to uh, to do a little uh, do some telecasts with you and, and and me working on the course and us working together a bit, and uh, that's been a lot of fun. And I've learned some great things from you, and I appreciate that. Um, but you know, talking about Fox in general, from that 2015 U.S. Open in coverage and now going into its fifth year in the U.S. Open coverage that you are co-hosting uh, now. What what sort of things have have you seen the evolution of television, of television uh, golf with Fox and and how, how have you seen that evolve? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the team has evolved first and foremost. I mean, you're seeing different people in boots, different people in, in, in situations. I feel like the the team is is very much set and it's the same team you're going to get. Uh, year in and year out now, which is nice, you know, for the viewer at home. And it's nice as we get more and more familiar with each other and comfortable speaking. I mean, you know, we we have 
group text chats that are that are that are happen all year long. And I mean, you know, you're in a chat with with a Curtis Strange and a, and a Paul Azinger and, and and Brad Fax, and you're like, <laughs> this is so strange to be in this, but it, it's more comfortable now as you're considered those guys your friends and your coworkers. Uh, I think something that I've always loved about Bime and Loomis and and the Fox crew, and this goes beyond golf. I mean, this was their initial. Uh, you know, Fourier into NFL and and hockey and and everything is um, is the is the ability to not be scared to try out stuff. I mean, you know, you think about Chambers Bay and there was that drone camera that would roll down the fairway. Yeah, and I that remember was something that. They tried, and then um, you know, every single time there there's there's emails throughout the year about here's a new graphic we might use or here's a new system we might use to figure out putting. That is that's such a fun team to be on. Is a team that wants to change and evolve and move with the times year in and year out. And uh, and it's going to be a little bit different this year in, in a good way. And, I mean, we get a chance to showcase Pebble Beach, for goodness sakes, at a U.S. Open. I mean, you know, when you do stuff like Shinnecock Hills and Pebble Beach and Oakmont and these historic venues that are kind of mixed in with Chambers Bay and Aaron Hills, you know, when you do new golf courses that the viewer doesn't know, it's important for people on the broadcasting team to explain what they're seeing. When you do Pebble Beach, all you have to do is set the action up. I mean, people want to see a major championship on a golf course like Pebble, and they'll be super fired up to see it. And that's all you really have to do is just allow people to enjoy themselves. You don't have to do too much or too little, and they're going to have a great time. And uh, the lineup, I mean, USGA tweeted out the other day, the lineup for the next, I don't know, 10 U.S. Open. It's outrageous. It's ridiculous. There's There's not a golf course on that list that a casual golfer hasn't heard of. I mean, that is uh, that is pretty amazing, especially when you consider that Fox's first four years, they had a Chambers Bay and an Aaron Hills, which, you know, for the casual golf fan, they hadn't heard of those golf courses. Now you're going to get LACC and Torrey and Pebble and Wingfoot. You know, that is, that's a real honor to be able to showcase the national championship on these golf courses that are, that are, I mean, for lack of a better term, perfect. I mean, they are perfect major venues. Yeah, they're so architecturally significant, aren't they? And they've got so much history. I mean, all you have to do is, you know, maybe play just, a, you know, from Pebble Beach, you know, the, the Nicholas One Iron bouncing off the flag stick. Right. And the chip. I mean, it's just a it just floods back all those memories. And uh, I'm sure there's lots of great memories to be made uh, this year. And I'm sure you're 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 super excited for all the venues outside of maybe those U.S. Open venues. What sort of venues this year? Year in particular, and, and where will you know all of our listeners of the Silver Club podcast? Where will they see you uh, in action? Are you going to do you cover every single event for Fox? Yeah, every single one. I mean, we we have a uh, you know we start out. I believe our first event is in two months, less than two months. What is today? The fourteenth. I mean, our our first event is two months from from Saturday, and that's the U.S. Senior Women's Open. That'll be the second year of that, which is awesome. Um, that's Pine Needles. Then we roll into the Women's Open in Charleston at Country Club of Charleston, which is uh, Rainer, I believe. And, and I uh, and I I mean, you know, when you get to go to Charleston for work. But, <laughs> you know, you, you look at at the lineup to go to Old Waverly, you know, so much history there for the women's amateur and Pinehurst for the U.S. amateur. I mean, the lineup last year was great, but it doesn't ever drag. You never get a year where you look at the lineup thinking uh, that golf course is going to be OK. They're always these either they're. Golf courses you're excited to showcase because they've never been showcased before in this capacity. Like last year, the U.S. Senior Women's Open was at Chicago Golf Club. Right, right. You know, you're showing a place that everybody's heard of. They don't know what it looks like. They've always wanted to play it. 
And that's what you're getting to do. So that week when you do that, there's a little more emphasis on the golf course to start. And then when you do places like Pinehurst that most people know about, you know, the emphasis is on the players. Let's look at these future stars of professional golf and sh- and show what they're able to do. I mean, the, you, as you know so well, and uh, and that was like last year getting Victor Hovland doing what he does. Last year, uh, last week, I'm doing the Arnold Palmer Invitational, and Victor Hovland's part of our coverage. You know, playing as an amateur, Ex- making the cut <laughs> exactly. at the API. So it's going to happen quick. You know, golf golf transitions, and 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 that uh, that new crop comes up fast. So uh, that's uh, that's the fun part about the amateur ranks is you showcase these guys. You you just mentioned our our trip. To uh to go up in uh you know when we played together in Wichita, mm-hmm. you know Matthew Wolf was in the championship match there. Exactly. He's going to be a pro in a year, year and a half, a two su- years. A su- max. Superstar pro. Yeah. So I mean that, and that was a junior am. I mean that's what's so wild. That's a couple years ago, and before we know it, he's going to be a PJ Tour winner. So that's what I love the most about the USGA schedule is getting to do the big events is an honor. I mean, getting to do a U.S. Open or a Women's Open, Senior Open. But, you know, when you get to do these amateur events, you're literally looking at players that are eventually going to be in the lexicon of golfers. I mean, Alexa Pano last week, you know, was 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 battling in the Symmetra. She almost won. You know, we, we had her in plenty of events as an 11 and a 12 and a 13 year old. And you're looking at a, at a superstar in the making before a lot of people get to see him. Amen on that. It's uh, yeah, there, there's there's so many amazing uh, just young talents out there ready to ready to burst onto the scene at the U.S. Opens and and all that. And, you know, speaking about the U.S. Open and, and you know, I would just get uh, a fraction. You know, you're you've got a little bit of a sentimental side to you. I, I, I saw one of the, one of the one of the posts that I saw from you last summer. It was during the U.S. Open. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe last year was the very first time that you were able to co-host the U.S. Open. And, and tell me a story revolving around that and a refurbished Omega watch that you wore during the telecast. Yeah. Um, yeah. Last year was the first time I was uh, I was in the, the host chair half the time. You know, Joe, Joe Buck had, um, you know, the other time with Zinger and it was Faxon and I in there for some of the morning coverage and, and just kind of in and out. But uh, yeah, my uh, my aunt. Uh, this is probably, uh, I guess, two Christmases ago, uh, there was a lockbox in East Texas and it had some old stuff from our grandparents. And she said, y'all all need to come look at this because it's been sitting here for 20 years and nobody ever comes and looks at it. Nobody touches it and either take what you want or I'm going to donate the rest because I don't want it just sitting here forever. And uh, so we're digging through some stuff and there was a bag and it was a Rolex bag. And of course I'm thinking, Oh my God, is a Rolex in here. And so I, uh, I pull the bag out and open it. And it's this beat up Omega watch. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I said, I said, whose is this? And she said, well, that, that's your granddad's. And, uh, and I was like, well, can I have it? And she was like, yeah, that's the whole point of this. So, I, I grabbed it. I mean, it didn't work and it was, you know, the, the face was massively scratched and the band was falling apart. And so I, I brought it back to Phoenix and took it to an Omega store and just basically was said, you know, whatever you guys can do to make this thing work and make it look good and put a new band on it and, uh, and kind of whatever it cost. I mean, this was my granddad's and, uh, and, you know, my granddad was a big golfer and he passed away before I even got into the game. He passed away in the, in the 1990s. So, mm-hmm. You know, it was in in this was something, you know, my mom always talks about how when I was playing junior golf through the AJGA and, and going to these HGA events and playing in local tournaments in East Texas, my granddad would have come to everything. I mean, he would have been walking alongside, you know, he would have been such a proud granddad. And so uh, I got it all fixed up and, and they did an unbelievable job. And 
I got it back, and, and I never wore it. The first day I wore it was the first day uh, we were broadcasting uh, for the U.S. Open there, Brad and I were. And so, yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was a really, really cool thing to do. And I still kind of only wear it on big moments. I mean, I still wear it to, to big events or big broadcasting events that I'm doing, and, and I don't really casually wear the watch because I want it to be something that, that's always very sentimental to me because I know my granddad would be super fired up if he was here to kind of watch these things unfold. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a wonderful story and a wonderful tribute to a, a man who uh, surely meant a lot to you on the golf course. Uh, and bef- before we let you go, I, we've got to uh, you got to talk about your podcast a little bit. The Clubhouse with Shane Bacon. You're 123 episodes in uh, your recent episode just came out yesterday with uh, with fellow Fox broadcaster Curtis Strange. Uh, talk to us about doing podcasts and 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 uh, you know how how much fun it's been to interview some of the greats of the game over over these 123 episodes. Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, there was this, when I started the clubhouse. There weren't many golf podcasts out there. Uh, my buddies at the No Lane Up uh, at No Lane Up had one that was kind of in the early stages. And outside of that, there wasn't much. And I I talked to Fox about it for a number of months. Just uh, let me get this thing going and. And let's get a producer on it, and we'll uh, we'll try to bring some people on. And you know, we've had uh, you know over the last two or three years, we've had Rory McIlroy and Brooks Kepka and Ricky Fowler and Justin Thomas and Gary Player and, and uh, you know, of course, Curtis and Julie Inkster and these types of people that uh, you know they're players and analysts and and broadcasters and major champions. And so, you know, it's it's been very very cool. It's been it's been uh, it's been more interesting lately as more and more golf podcasts come out. Uh, because it's a little bit harder to get people to come on. Um, but something I've learned is that it doesn't necessarily matter who you have on as long as the conversation and the story is great. And so some of my favorite podcasts have been ones with guys like Patrick Koenig, you know, who rented an RV and drove around the country for a year playing golf every day. I mean, those stories, you know, Tom Coyne I did in a hotel room last year during a USGA event. I think it was the Curtis Cup and talking about his book and his journeys around Ireland and Scotland and and, and now the U.S. So yeah, that, that's what I look for. And, you know, some are focused on pro golf and some have nothing to do with professional golf. And that's something that I've really tried to tried to bring to the podcast world is uh, not always talking about what's happening at the higher ranks to make sure we focus on the sport that we all love, because this is the most unique sport in the world. I mean, it's the one that, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 year olds still want to play and still love and maybe get more passionate about as the years go on. Well, I, well, I have to say that if uh, yeah, any of our listeners of the Silver Club podcast are out there, you and you haven't heard Shane Bacon, you've lived in a hole recently because you are you are everywhere. You've got amazing stuff. You could talk golf all day, as could I. But you know, eventually we've got to we got to let you go. You've got bigger and better fish to fry. But we really appreciate you ha- having you on the uh, Silver Club podcast. Where are we going to see you next? Where's the Where's Shane Bacon going to be next? Yeah, I think the first event, as I mentioned, uh, that we'll be doing is uh, is in two months, I believe. The, the U.S. Senior uh, Women's Open, yeah, which will we, be the second year of that. And you do and, some um, PGA Tour live stuff, too, right? In between? A little bit, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it, I, I probably, I think I don't, I don't have anything until then. I had a couple of events early in the season. I did Riviera and then Bay Hill last week. But um, it'll be podcast stuff. So, uh, like you said, I appreciate you, you plugging that. If you want to subscribe to the clubhouse, uh, it's kind of on all the outlets. And then... Just uh, just kind of getting myself prepped for uh, for the summer that is with the USGA and Fox because it's a busy summer. It's a lot of travel, but it's a fun, fun thing to be a part of. When the summer ends, I'm always bummed. You know, I, I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, thank goodness the summer's over. And I'm like, 
oh man, that was like, it's almost like you're at camp, you know, every week you're seeing the same guys and the same producers and sound guys and, and camera guys and audio techs. And, you know, you're kind of, you go here and you go home for a couple of days and you go back to, to, to Chicago or Maryland or North Carolina. And uh, it, it, it's really, really fun to be on the road like that. So, uh, so we are, uh, we're fired up for the summer to get going. Well, we're looking forward to watching you and listening to you and uh, everywhere Shane Bacon is, that's where we are. So thanks Shane for being on the podcast today and uh, we'll see you real soon. Anytime, Steve. I appreciate it.